Uh, and in 2019, the uh, Democrat mayor, uh, Pete Buttigieg, when he ran for president, he said these words at the beginning of his campaign. Uh, he was a former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and he said, a vote based on Christian values should indeed turn the country around, but in a progressive direction. Christianity to me is about humility. It's about love. And if we want to put those values into political practice, at least by my lights, they lead us in a very progressive direction. Well, just a few years prior, Republican Senator Ted Cruz announced his election, his candidacy in 2015, and here is what Senator Ted Cruz said. He said, if Christians would simply show up and vote our values, we'll turn this country around. I'm thinking he had a very different idea than Mayor Pete did at that time, right? Uh, These two individuals couldn't be further apart on their political spectrum, but they claim Jesus and his way to be closely aligned with their political agenda. And maybe it's just a a good thing. Maybe we ought to consider it a compliment that when somebody runs for office, uh, whatever their faith background is, they all claim, no matter what their side is, that Jesus is on their side. Everyone claims Jesus to be on their side. In fact, I heard somebody from the, far, uh, from the far right say this, on the conservative right. They said, Jesus believed in tough immigration policy. He supported user pay health care. And if Jesus had a gun, he would have defended himself against the Romans. <laughs> a few theological issues there. Someone on the far left, on the progressive left, said, Jesus was a brown-skinned Jew, which is true, who believed in same-sex marriage, decriminalization of marijuana, of all things, <laughs> that he will be a socialist, an activist, and a communist. Oh, yeah, they know Jesus really well. We all. It's amazing that we try in so many ways during election seasons to form Jesus into our image rather than being transformed into his image. It's like, yeah, that's a good, yeah, thank you. It's like we're all looking at a well, wanting to see Jesus, but we see the image of ourselves, so we think, there's Jesus. And I think it's because we want to feel better about ourselves. So we claim Jesus to be in our image. And I think part of the problem is we are more politically literate then we are biblically literate. And we're discipled by our favorite newscaster or our social media influencer more than we are by the Holy Spirit who takes God's word and applies it to our heart in the context of a Christ-centered community. When Facebook first started, people, especially the older saints, I'm not calling you old, but older saints would say, don't be so busy on Facebook. Seek his face and read his book. Love that. Partly because they didn't know how to use Facebook, but it was still a good, good line to have. And here's the reality. God doesn't pick any of our sides. He stands on a side all by himself. It is a self-existent side called holy, holy, holy. And he invites us to choose his side. Remember what he spoke through Joshua. Choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Joshua's answer was from me and my household. We will serve the Lord. We want to be on his side. We're choosing him no matter what. During the next 12 months, the rhetoric and polarization of politics is only going to increase and ramp up. 
And as your lead pastor, I feel the need to prepare and safeguard our church in this season, to keep reminding us of what is most important as a church community. And for us to not forget that Satan will love nothing more than the division out there to cause division in here. At least in the Western world, for far too long, the enemy has divided the blood-bought body of Christ along political lines. And I think we ought to say, no more. No more. Jesus in John 17 spent a whole chapter praying for the unity of his followers because they didn't have it on themselves. And they couldn't create it by themselves. But he is praying, Father, make them one as you and I are one. Make Simon the tax, Simon the zealot, who's all about Israel and Jewish people and their rights, make him one with the former tax collector, Matthew, who was all about Rome. Make them one. And that's what the Spirit did. As the Spirit came down on Pentecost, he began to form not a church that had uniformity, but a church that had unity. In fact, Paul describes the unity of the church like this in Colossians 3, verse 11, where he says, In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. They had Jews and they had Greeks, but in Christ, all of the dividing walls of hostility came down. And we know Jew and Greek, we know circumcision and uncircumcision, we even know slave and free, but barbarian and Scythian, they were two polarized, really opposed groups of people. Barbarians refused the Greco-Roman politics and the social norms of, Greek, of Rome. And Scythians were all about it. They celebrated that which the barbarians refused. But when it came to the unity of the church, every wall of racism and ethnocentrism or nationalism or religious upbringing or social status, all of that was torn down. So if that's the case in first century, in the 21st century, we will have to decide, will we reconstruct the walls of division that Jesus tore down, or will we keep them demolished? In fact, here's a question we can answer over the next 12 months. Will we bear the fruit of Jesus' prayer in John 17, or the fruit of political division? Which one will we bear, the fruit of his prayer for unity, or the fruit of his prayer for the church? Amen. Unity. Now here's what I'm not communicating. I'm not communicating that politics doesn't matter because it does. There are some serious political issues facing our day that are significant for our nation and for our country. Politicians and politics both need reform and accountability. And we ought to speak up. In these moments, we ought to be politically engaged. We have the incredible gift of voting. It's a privilege. It is a responsibility. We get to be a part of a democracy that millions of people around the world have yet to taste. We ought to be involved because there are significant things in our world. So this is not a put away any political differences and let's just sing kumbaya and be united. Now, this is not that kind of a series. We have reasons to be politically engaged. In fact, the New Testament teaches that God created government. He instituted government to serve his purpose, his will on the earth. 
And that God places people in governmental roles to bear the sword so that they can restrain evil. So when we see humanity not flourishing and evil not being restrained and God not being honored, we do have a responsibility to engage and speak up and have political convictions. So this series isn't to say that politics doesn't matter because it does. It is to say, though, that the Great Commission matters more than politics. The series isn't to say that we shouldn't voice our political convictions because we should, but it is to say that the new commandment of Jesus to love one another, just as Christ loved us, that matters more than being proven right. Christians of all people can disagree without being disrespectful. We can and we should seek common ground, look for common ground, even if we disagree on the approaches We can find common shared values. And if we say, as we do here at Bentry, that pursuing our community, having gospel conversations and sent moments, it is of highest importance to the mission of our church, then that means we are unwilling to lose even an ounce of gospel influence simply because of the way we engage in politics. Not because we do, but because of the way engage in politics. I believe with my whole heart that we can be united in our posture, though we are divided, or though we may be divided in our politics. We can be divided in our politics, but yet we can be united in our posture towards God, our posture towards one another, and our posture towards the world. And here's the news, and here's why we can't be. We're not just a church of Republicans. And we're not just a church of Democrats. Why? Because heaven isn't just for Republicans. And heaven isn't just for Democrats. I know, that might be like news for you. I think you'll be surprised when you get up there who all is there. I mean, there's going to be some libertarians and constitutionals and Green Party folks some independents, and some people who haven't even voted are going to be around the throne of grace, the throne of Jesus. So if we're going to spend eternity with people who vote differently, why not practice getting along with people in the here and now as a way of rehearsing heaven for the then and there? It's imperative that we learn to be united in our posture, though we may be divided in our politics. When it comes to divided politics, the question that I've often heard and we often ask is, I wonder what Jesus would do if he lived in divided politics like we do. I wonder how he would engage. I wonder what he would do. Well, here's the good news. We don't have to wonder what Jesus would do. We actually know what he did do. We don't have to wonder what he would do. We know what he did do. Jesus lived in one of the most politically contentious times across all of Jewish history. I mean, the Jewish people have been under the Roman oppression for many years now, under rulers like Rome for many generations now. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, where they had multiple anti-imperial uprisings in his day. He lived in a highly politically charged environment. In fact, Jesus just didn't have two parties, two major parties to choose from. He had about six political parties and religious institutions that held political influence. And they all had a unique agenda to politics. 
here are some of them. They were, they were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group of religious, priestly aristocracy. And they held on to political influence by closely aligning with the Roman authorities. They were a religious group, but they held on to power by closely aligning with the Romans. And then you have the Pharisees. They were more of a conservative group. They had a conservative view of the Jewish law and the Torah. And they had incredible impact and engagement in their community, but they were not closely associated to the Romans like the Sadducees were. Then you have the Zealots. They were a violent resistance group who took on themselves to overthrow the Roman Empire through insurrections and murder and assassinations and violence. And then you have on the polar opposite, the Essenes, who literally fled to the mountains. (laughs) They're like, we're going to hunker down like some of us would want to do. I just get water, oil, flour, and want to just wait till Jesus comes back. And they literally separated themselves from the public life, from any social and political order, just to be religiously pure. And they lived up on the mountains. They were an ascetic group of people. Then you have the Herodians, who were a Jewish faction that supported Herod's dynasty that the Roman Empire created to keep peace between Jews and Romans. And then you have the Roman Empire, the Romans, who had now been ruling the Jewish people since 63 BC. And they would rule and reign in that land until 4th century AD. That's a long time. In fact, in 70 AD, in response to the zealots, a Jewish revolt, the Roman Empire would come and lay siege on Jerusalem and they would destroy the Jerusalem temple, causing Jews to be separated all over the world. And in the second century, they wouldn't rename Judea to Syria, Palestinia. Emperor Hadrian would come and rename the name of the land to Palestine to mirror Philistines, who are the ancient Israelite enemies. They wanted to do was remove any connection, any identity of the Jewish people from their own land. You see how varied and complex the political climate is that Jesus steps into. And it's understandable that those who are waiting for a Messiah expected a conquering warrior to come and liberate the chosen people of God. Finally, send someone, God, that would free us from this oppression. And then Jesus comes on the scene into this divided, varied, complex political climate. And Jesus' first words were pretty amazing. Mark records some of his earliest words in Mark 1, verse 15, where Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. It's finally here. The time has come, and the kingdom of God has come near. So repent and believe the good news. One of the most frequent statements of Jesus was, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's come. It's being initiated in front of your eyes. And when most people heard the statement, you know what they thought? They thought this was incredibly a political statement because to have a new kingdom means that there is a new king. And Jesus was making a statement that he was the ultimate king, not Caesar. That the highest allegiance belonged to Jesus, not to the Roman emperor. That he was bringing about a new kingdom unlike anything they had ever seen. But the misunderstanding was in what kind of a king he would be and what kind of a kingdom 
he was ushering. See, the common folks of that day, the marginalized groups, they received this news of the good news with all their heart. The sick, the lame, the poor, the women, the marginalized, the oppressed. Because finally, a kingdom that they could be a part of was here. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious groups, the elites of that day, they pushed against it because Jesus was not one of them. And he, in fact, challenged their interpretation and their perspective of God. The zealots challenged Jesus because Jesus was nonviolent. And he wasn't violent enough for them. He wasn't planning an insurrection against Rome. The saints disagree with Jesus because he wasn't separate enough. It was far too mingled with the social and political and religious order of the day. They all were challenged by Jesus and the news of his kingdom because they didn't have a category for the new kingdom that Jesus was bringing. And he didn't fit with their agenda. He wasn't picking any of their sides. He was here to bring about a new way of life and to birth a new community, the kingdom of God here on earth. What about the Romans? How did Jesus engage with the government of his time? I want to look at that for a few moments. There's a scene, a profound scene that happens when Jesus is arrested, and he, for the first time, stands in front of Pilate. For the first time, he stands in front of of the government, of the empire of his day. And I think this conversation is absolutely riveting. Look how Mark 15 records this conversation with Jesus and Pilate. It says in verse 1 of of Mark 15, As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Let me pause there. All the six groups are represented here. The chief priests, Sanhedrin, The Pharisees, the Sadducees, Pilate is here. The only group that's missing is the Essenes because they're still on the mountaintop. They're not going to engage no matter what. So outside of them, everyone else is actually in the scene. And here is Jesus standing before Pilate. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you say so. You say so. Pilate is not asking, are you the Messiah? Because this is not a theological question at all. Pilate could care less if Jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic promises. He is asking, are you the king of the Jews? Meaning, are you a political leader? Will your movement, will your followers have ramifications on the Roman Empire? Will what you're saying and what you're doing, will it remove power from me and the Romans? I love Jesus' response of ambiguity. You decide. You say so. It's fascinating when Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin. They ask him a similar question but a different agenda. They said, are you the Messiah? And his answer is, you have said so, meaning, yes, I am. But when he is questioned about his political kingship, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus doesn't answer with a yes or a no. He answers yes and no. You say so. Literally, the Greek phrase is, you say it with the emphasis on you. The late Tim Keller, he says about this moment, if Buddha was asked this question, his answer would be no. If Muhammad was asked this question, his answer would be yes. 
But Jesus answers this question with yes and no. He neither affirms nor denies, or he does both at the same time. In John's account of this conversation, in John 18, where Jesus is having this conversation with Pilate, John includes Jesus' words to Pilate, my kingdom isn't of this world. If it were, my servants would be taken up swords and they will be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But they're not because my kingdom isn't from this world. What Jesus is saying is, I am a king, but not a kind of king that you're assuming me to be. See, Jesus could have told Pilate, I'm just a spiritual leader. You can leave me alone. I have no agenda of the politics of today or the social order of today. And immediately, Pilate would have released him. Okay, go on with your way. I got the answer I'm looking for. Or Jesus could have said to Pilate, I am a political leader. And it would have warranted Pilate with full conscience arresting Jesus. But Jesus says neither. He says yes and no. Why? Because though Jesus was not coming into the world as a political leader, his movement, his message would disrupt every social order in the world. Though Jesus was the king, he was not just the king of the Jews. He is a king of kings, bringing in a whole new kind of kingdom that the world had never seen. So he leaves it ambiguous. You say so. As in, in time, you'll see the kind of king that I am. The conversation goes on in Mark 15, verse 3, and it says, And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate questioned him again, Aren't you going to answer? Pilate hasn't gotten the answer he's looking for. So aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. Just imagine the scene. The religious leaders are there, and they're accusing Jesus. They are frantic. They are making all kinds of accusations. Pilate, you know at the end of the story, he wants to release Jesus. So he is asking Jesus, Jesus, just answer the question. Just defend yourself. Fight back, and you can be released. I literally have the power to let you go, so aren't you going to answer the question? And what does Jesus say? Nothing. He remained silent. He could have answered, he could have refuted, he could have argued, but he said nothing. And here, it wasn't his words that caused Pilate to be amazed. It was his silence caused Pilate to be amazed. And that word amazes, literally, he stood in wonder in awe of the silence of Jesus. I think what Pilate saw in this moment is Jesus there in the middle all by himself, and he is surrounded by every political and religious leader of his day, and they're accusing him, they are threatening him of things he did not do, and there is Jesus standing square in the middle with unshakable peace not feeling the need to respond or engage in the questions or accusations. Jesus, with incredible, deep, profound inner peace, being still, not even needing to answer Pilate who could release him. I think there's an incredible application for the church today from this example of Jesus. That as people accuse you or me or the church, that as the enemies of Jesus want an answer from us, as political rhetoric turns up, 
the church of Jesus collectively and the people of God collectively and individually, we can be the most non-anxious presence in an anxious world. You and I, we can be the most non-anxious presence in an anxious world. When people are stirred up and politicians are stirred up and everyone is asking you a question, you can stand still. And the peace of the church in a tumultuous time can cause, like it did for Pilate, the amazement of the world. We just finished a series called Bookends where we looked at Genesis and Revelation, the beginning and end of the story, and we peeked into the ultimate reality where Jesus returns and the church of Jesus, the followers of Christ, are reigning, ruling victoriously, gloriously with him for all of ages to come. And my hope as we peeked into that ultimate reality was that from that perspective, we can engage in the immediate reality of our life. Whether it be politics or sickness or broken relationships, we can engage in the immediate reality of our life with peace because we know the end of the story. We can engage in political conversations with stillness Why? Because we see Jesus to be Lord of all, King of kings. He's never dethroned. He's sovereign. He's got a plan of the universe that he's unfolding before our eyes. So in the midst of the chaos and questions, we can be still. We need to be alert, but we don't need to be alarmed. We should be politically engaged, but we don't have to be politically charged. We can be a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. As the story goes on, a new character is introduced to us. Jesus says nothing. And then, notice what happens in verse 6. At the festival, Pilate used to release for people a prisoner whom they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. This is a highly political environment. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of their envy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priest stirred up the crowds so that he would release Barabbas to them. Instead, So Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again, they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. As according to custom during the Passover festival, the Pilate, Pilate could release one prisoner for the Jewish people. And here we're introduced to Barabbas, a zealot. He represents a zealot in the story. So literally Jesus is surrounded by everyone except the scenes, of course, but everyone else is there. And Pilate wants to release Jesus. But the crowd is calling for Barabbas. 
Now, I love how Matthew, specifically based on early manuscripts, he paints this narrative on his account in Matthew 27 as he paints a story between Jesus and Barabbas. Notice how Matthew 27 reads. Uh, there we go. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? Jesus was a common name in first century, just like Liban is today, like really common among all people. <laughs> just kidding. But Jesus was a common name, and here in Matthew's account, Pilate has not one but two Jesuses. On his hand. He's got Jesus Barabbas and Jesus the Messiah. Barabbas literally means bar, which means son of, and Abba, which means father. So Barabbas means son of the father. So you've got one Jesus, Jesus Barabbas, who's a murderer, a rebel, a prisoner, rightfully so. Jesus Barabbas the son of a father, and then you have Jesus, the Messiah, the only begotten son of God. Pilate has two Jesuses on his hand, not just one. And here's the deal. They both want to change the world. They are both revolutionary leaders of their time. One's a zealot, and one's the Messiah. Jesus Barabbas, he wants to take over and change his world through insurrection, violence, and assassination. He wants to change the world through coercive power, greed, worldliness. He wants to change the world through militant power and overthrow the Roman system through his own ideas and efforts. But then you have Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, He's not militant, he is merciful. He is a son of God. Instead of killing people, Jesus raises the dead. Barabbas would take from the poor and offer them false promises and assurance, but Jesus would feed the poor, heal the sick, open blind eyes, open deaf ear. Barabbas came for war, Jesus came to bring peace. Barabbas is a zealot, Jesus is prince of peace. Pilate has in custody two Jesuses, Jesus Barabbas, Jesus Messiah, and the crowd has the opportunity to get one of them released. So who do they choose? Jesus Barabbas. They say, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Why would they choose Barabbas? It's because they know what to do with Barabbas, one who kills but they don't know what to do with Jesus, one who raises the dead. They know how to stop a Barabbas. They've done that before. We can outpower him. He wants to kill. But this man who is raising the dead and bringing sight to the blind, we have no idea what to do with him. So crucify him and give us Barabbas. So they chose the murderer and gave up the merciful one. They chose 
the guilty and gave up the innocent. They chose the rubble and gave up the redeemer. And Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God, Lord of all, who has all power, all authority, who could dismantle the arguments of everyone around him, who could throw down angels in that moment, what does he do? He uses his power to surrender. He uses his power to become a substitute for Barabbas. He uses his power to save those who are yelling, crucify him. Jesus was all authority. He chooses to lay down his life and to use his authority and power towards sacrifice. Self-sacrifice, not self-protection. Self-sacrifice. Jesus chooses the way of the cross. Remember when in the wilderness Jesus is tempted by the enemy, by Satan, and Satan, one of his temptations, says, Jesus, just bow down to me, and you can have all the kingdoms of the world. It's yours. Just bow down to me. But Jesus refuses. Satan was offering Jesus a bypass to get around the cross. But Jesus refused kingship by the world standards and by demonic influences. And he chose the way of the cross because this kingdom, the kingdom of God, could only come to earth by way of sacrifice and by way of the cross. So as we think about how we engage in the politics of our day and how we engage in the life that we live, we have the chance to choose the way of Barabbas or the way of the cross. The way of Barabbas, the way of the world, or the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. The way of Barabbas seeks to gain earthly power and maintain earthly power by way of violence and threat. It is all about winning at whatever cost, no matter who you have to hurt, no matter what you have to do. It has always come out on top, no matter the cost. The way of Barabbas is tribal, it is worldly, it is greedy, it is fueled by fear, competition, and vitriol. It's the way of Barabbas. But the way of the cross is entirely different. The way of Jesus blesses persecutors and turns the other cheek, goes the extra mile, loves extravagantly, loves even our enemies here in the way of Jesus. The last is the first, the weak or strong, the humbled are exalted because this is an upside down kingdom. The way of the cross rejects worldly means to kingship as Jesus himself did. And it does not rely on earthly power even if you have it. Because it only relies on heavenly power. It doesn't rely on man's vindication. It only relies on God's vindication. The way of the cross sees a path to ultimate victory, not through self-preservation, but through sacrifice. The way of the cross isn't tribal or nationalistic. It is about a global kingdom where Jesus is forming for himself a whole new, entirely holy nation made up of every tribe, language, and nation all around the world, and he's forming for himself a people. The way of the cross is not coercive power, but uncompromising love for each other. And let me tell you, the way of the cross does not give allegiance to any Caesar of our day, but only to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That is the way of the cross. And here's what I want you to know. The world always chooses Barabbas's. Because in the eyes of the world, Barabbas wins. In fact, over the next 12 months, you are going to be tempted to be a Barabbas. 
<laughs> typing, emailing, writing, tearing people down, using whatever you can't get your hands off, hands on, to bring and tear down people. The world wants Barabbas, and in the eyes of the world, Barabbas wins. But would you and I, would we choose not the way of Barabbas, but the way of the cross? And be engaged politically. Speak up. Make your voices heard. Have convictions. Be the salt of the earth that prevents cultural decay and moral regression. Be the light of Jesus, the light of hope. Be engaged. But in the midst of that, don't give in to the temptation to be in the way of Barabbas. Why? Because ultimately, Barabbas failed. Those like Barabbas caused a revolt in 70 AD and Jerusalem was destroyed. Ultimately, it's not the path of victory. Barabbas' will come and go. And in the immediate term, it may seem like they win, but they don't ultimately in the eyes of God. But though Barabbas failed, the way of the cross prevailed, didn't it? The way of Jesus, the way of the cross is unstoppable. And it didn't just change Rome. It changed the entire world. That's why today the cross still stands. We sing about Jesus, not Caesar. We give our allegiance to Christ, not the government, because the way of Jesus, the way of the cross always prevails. And that's where we're going to pick up next weekend. So you got to come back. Did you bow your heads with me? There's some of you who more than the way of the cross, you need to receive today the work of the cross. You need to receive the fact that you and I, we were the Barabbases who were guilty as charged, and Jesus stepped in and became our substitute. This is the gospel. He let us go free. We were guilty as charged. We committed the highest crimes against the holy God, but he came in and says, I'll be your substitute. Take me in and release them. Today, for the sins of our soul, the brokennesses of our world, it is only seeing Jesus on the cross. They're hanging with his arms stretched out. That is the hope of our salvation. No party, no leader can save your soul. Only Jesus can. So today, would you consider Christ to be your Savior, to be your Lord? Give your highest allegiance to Lord Jesus. And for those of us who are following Christ, refuse the way of Barabbas and embrace the way of the cross. In all of our engagement, in all of our doing, model for the world the way of the cross. So, Father, help us. Help us to be a not anxious presence in a highly anxious world. That through trust in you and trust in your story and trust in the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, we can remain steadfast in the cross of Jesus Christ and model for the world what Jesus modeled for us when he stood right there in front of Pilate. God, we need you. We trust you. Help us, God, to never lose gospel influence because of the way we engage in politics. Help us to be a community set apart, united, more on mission, more together, more for each other at the end of 2024 than we were at the start of it. May you do that all by the power of your spirit in and through our lives. If there's anybody today who needs to receive the finished work of the cross so that we can live in the way of Jesus, may this be the day of salvation, surrender, trusting in Christ as our Lord and Savior. 
In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said together, amen, amen, amen. Could you thank God for his word and for the scriptures that he's preserved for us?